Ahoy, mateys. Ahoy, mateys. This is Stevie Wayne and Miss Weathervane signing off. As we don't know if we're going to survive this fog, but this flick definitely wasn't a slog. I don't know what to say. I like it like that. <gasps> Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? It's very difficult to pick a favorite dialogue from The Fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. So I have actually wiggled out three. So it's a three-way tie. Three? I know. But it's such a fucking fantastic movie. Blake's voice over the tape recorder. Something that one lives with, like an albatross round the neck. No, more like a millstone. A plumbing stone by God damn them all. If you think about what was going to be said by this water demon or this water wraith, that's pretty fucking great. It's obscure, but it's direct. It's definitely fucked up. And you feel what you see on Stevie Wayne's face. Holy shit. Now you have Father Malone. He reads from Patrick Malone's journal, and he reads this long, sad story which I'm not going to read here, but I will start so that you have some context when we get to my favorite subsequent line. December 9th, met with Blake this evening for the first time. He stood in the shadows to prevent me from getting a clear look at his face. There's six conspirators. We met on the night of April 20th. From midnight until one o'clock, we planned the death of Blake and his comrades. And then Sandy says, your grandfather had a way with words. And then Father Malone closes, the celebration tonight is a travesty. We're honoring murderers. That's my second favorite line of dialogue. And then my third favorite, you've got Kathy Williams, you've got Father Malone, and Sandy Fidel. Now, Kathy Williams is played by Janet fucking Lee, who not only was the scream queen in Psycho, but she's Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Father Malone, of course, is the great Hall Holbrook, and Sandy was Annie Brackett in Halloween. But Kathy starts, Are you going to give the benediction tonight, Father? Antonio Bay has a curse on it. Sandy. Do we take that as a no? <laughs> yeah, Sandy's great. The way that Father Malone was just staring off into the distance in the church, totally bamboozled by this tragic news of conspirators and murder and cover-up and stolen loot, I love it. Now here are some contender lines. You have Elizabeth, played by the great Jamie Lee Curtis, and Nick Castle, played by Tom Atkins. Listen, I never hitchhiked before. I just really want to be careful. Can I ask you something? Sure. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Thank God you're weird. The last one was so normal, it was disgusting. And then lastly, yeah, I thought you never hitchhiked before. Well, not before last week. You're my 13th ride. Great. Weird and unlucky. We'll see. Great dialogue. John Carpenter has a way with his character's words. I'm also wiggling out, and I have a three-way tie on favorite scene. Oh, man. I, you didn't tell me we could pick a bazillion. That's not the goal of bazillion, because you should have that one pivotal scene of dialogue or scene in the film that really reverberates with you. But this movie, it just speaks to me in ways that I never anticipated. My first favorite scene is the first five minutes around the campfire. You don't get a lot of ghost stories these days with films, 
and this is a legit shit ghost story, and I love it. The second is when the ladies, that's Jamie Lee Curtis's mother and Annie Brackett from Halloween, are driving up to the church. They're having a nice dialogue, it's sunny. The church is semi-secluded, but you're not expecting anything creepy to happen. One, this movie's called John Carpenter's The Fog. It's not called Pleasant Sunshine Monster. You don't think anything untoward is going to occur. But then they get to this church and the door opens by itself and Father Malone appears from the shadows like a wicked madman. It's fucking awesome. And then lastly, the last 30 seconds with the unholy, unanticipated decapitation, or what I call a sacra lobbing of the head, because it takes place in a church, you see. But the ending of this film is very strong. The beginning is very powerful. It lures you in and it holds your attention. So from beginning to the film's conclusion, I buy it. I love this fucking flick. What about you, Red Devil? What are one or two of your favorite lines? Well, if I'd known that we could pick 50 million, I would have done that. My favorite line coincides with one of your favorite scenes. The opening monologue, I love that. It just draws you in immediately. But since nobody wants to hear me do a monologue, I'll just quote the end. 12 o'clock, the 21st of April. So sinister. And honestly, I wish that we had more of that, like, camaraderie. We were kind of talking about that with the boys and the campfire. Like, more of that strewn throughout the film would have been cool. My second favorite line, really anything with Stevie Wayne, okay, because she's awesome. Her voice is awesome. Her hair is awesome. Her outfits are awesome. Everything. I'm a big Stevie Wayne fan. But when she's talking to that weird creepo weatherman, Dan, my idea of perfection is a voice on the phone. I love the attitude. It's great. Then my scene, I will pick two. So I really love the scene where Stevie is driving down the windy road up to the lighthouse. She's just jamming to tunes in her car. Her hair's flowing. She has the lotus leaf decal on her windshield. Just looks awesome. Honestly, it's just vibes for me, that scene. And then if I had to pick my favorite scary scene, I'm actually going to go maybe unconventional. I don't know. But I'm going to go with the scene in the morgue where Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Beth, is sitting with her back to the corpse. Which, I mean, have you ever seen a scary movie? You should never do that. She's sitting there and then all of a sudden you see the hand come out. And then he's like coming after her and it was gross slash scary. Yeah, that scene was actually added in. So John Carpenter created this film and was thoroughly dissatisfied with it originally. So that was one of many scenes that were added in. And it serves a twofold function. One... It's a reminder that this is, in fact, a horror slasher film. And two, it's a somewhat vital reminder that three have been killed. And this number of how many homicides, Mm -hmm. it does matter for purposes of the plot. While no doubt it's a mystery film and it's a supernatural film and it's fiction, if you are going to subscribe to the rules laid out by the merits of the film, the amount of deaths plays a pivotal role. Now, there is a poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, 1834. It's an extremely long poem, but I have snipped some snippets of it to share because I found these parts to be wholly applicable 
for purposes of John Carpenter's The Fog. So here's just a handful of stanzas from The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. The ship was cheered, the harbor cleared, merrily did we drop, below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, as in Blake, and he shone bright, and on the right went down into the sea. And that fits, right? Because the fog has this bioluminescence to it, a glow, a light. It's as if each member of Blake's faded crew is holding a flashlight, but they're not. The wedding guest, he beat his breast, yet he cannot choose but hear, and thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. At length did cross an albatross, through the fog it came, and if it had been a Christian soul, we hailed it in God's name. That sounds like something that Blake would say. And lastly, God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why lookest thou so with my crossbow? I shot the albatross. <laughs> I'm scared. And then another great little addition that I found that fits Sailor so references. perfectly. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a great song that, interestingly enough, Red Devil and I have loved from the very beginning of our relationship. It was on the first CD that you burned me, I feel like. It's called Watchmen, What is Left of the Night by Greycoats. It's a very short song, and it's about five and a half minutes long. And I distinctly remember Red Devil hearing it for the first time. And much like myself, she really loved the end. But it's a very brief song, but it starts off, You can only take so much before you turn to stone. And then we get to the end, and it's like, sail on, sail on, sail on. And then we get to the crux of the what this song's all about, which is sirens, like the siren song. And you can hear the siren song, but it's not where you belong. And then we get this great stanza at the end. To finish us out, red sky by night, sailors delight, red sky by morning, sailor take warning. Now that is one diabolical duet, if I do say so myself. (laughs) If you are not, the second you finish this John Carpenter's The Fog film review, if you're not listening to Watchmen, comma, What is Left of the Night, question mark, by Greycoats, you're doing yourself a disservice. It is a fantastic song. It's a good song to watch when you're setting sail. It's a good song to watch if you're driving home and the sun is setting. But be careful not to stare too long, or you might turn to stone. Now that's the Medusa. (music) Greetings, Cinematic Fanatics. Allow us the pleasure of ushering you down the pristinely clean, sandy beaches of a sleepy, centennial-celebrating coastal community that seems serene on the surface of the warm, inviting waves sway, but harbors dark depths of spoils pilfering greed and one unforgivable, murderous misdeed. Do tread lightly in the salt water as we offer you the life preserve of Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick Explaining series, a desirable diversion 
from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are our cinematic fanatics. We, your worthwhile fucking cinephiles. For your 19th episode, Red Devil and I review one of our most sunken treasures, a sublime pastime of watching, rewatching this top-notch follow-up to John Carpenter's Halloween. This mystery maritime remains a resounding great fucking time, for it shows us one ghostly galleon, the seafaring pants you'll pee scaring, the Elizabeth Dane drove the crew insane aboard the three-mast clipper, captained by a murderous skipper, Blake the Bay Slain Ripper. That's pretty good shit. Yeah. I created this out of thin fog air. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Carpenter's directing in his prime, commanding the flash mob fog's dread, looming mystery, and capturing with iconic intensity, Blake and his six crewmates undead. We, Red Devil and I, have adored this film since our first Texas viewing before bedtime. From the buoy's disarming chime to the alarming leper ghouls of maritime, this is a slick horror flick I own on Prime and remains an infectiously addicting good fucking time. I confess to you, cinematic fanatics, here in F-Stars now, this seagrass, seafaring flick is neither feared nor revered by all. And some scorners make the mistake of dismissing the fog and forsaking the sword-wielding Blake. They claim this to be a nautical debacle, that the effects remain far too tame. I consider their criticisms unfounded. Their lack of idolization for this slow-burning, seaweed-churning, decapitation-earning ending ungrounded. And this review shall silence their slanders, with saltwater-filled lungs drowned. This is a slick, maritime, cinematic experience that touches a trio of genres, supernatural, mystery, and horror. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. Jamie Lee remains a plucky, welcome sight to see. The ghoulish deckhands beset by leprosy and the smooth, sultry, satisfying voice of Stevie fucking Wayne broadcasts the whereabouts of these avenging, salty angels from the depths of the sea. Tom is not on the Atkins diet, with his dad, Bud, that's Budweiser, Bod, a salad, he won't even try it. I offer you, regarding this fantastic follow-up to Halloween, a flick rife with red-eyed water demons as unkillable as Michael Myers and as mean, where a dead calm fog rolls over the screen, where ghost fighters Stevie Wayne and Jamie Lee precede Sam and Dean. That's Winchester from Supernatural. John Carpenter's The Fog, circa February 1980. Hitchhiker rules. Not even Jamie Lee rides for free. The price of transport is flat ass, gas, or helping Nick scour for the seagrass. This film commences with a warm campfire. Father Malone proves a chilling liar. 
Due to Antonio Bay's dark deeds, six souls expire, for their bloodlines are tainted and descend into hell's deep sea pyre. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn, stale trawler ship. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass trawler ship I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a slick flick pick. John Carpenter's The Fog is the flick, so very slick, hence our F-Stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around, till falsetto prophets and Red Devil's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I'm your worthwhile cinephile. You're our cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with us, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. We offer you pick 19, slick flick pick, Forsaking Blake was their mistake. Dead, calm, leprosy, as in S-E-A-C. John Carpenter's The Fog, 1980. Today, we'll discuss why it pays to pick up a risque hitchhiking stray, the risks of collecting wood debris from the bay, how, though late to the broadcasting fray, Stevie still saves the fucking day. And no matter how much Father Malone may pray, he'll only earn a brief reprieve for Blake returns to behead his prey. Your worthwhile cinephile, falsetto prophet, and your dead calm fog blood bank co-host, Red Devil. That was fantastic. That was a lot. That was a lot. It was fantastic. Before we proceed, cinematic fanatics, and before we cinematically theatrically swan dive into the slick flick pick review, Allow me to first gift an indelible shout-out to Hermann Tress. Thank you, Hermann Tress, all connected on Instagram. Not only did Haley, aka Hermann Tress, keep my Kimohawk Mohawk looking clean, dapper, and pristine there at Wavelink Salon on 9th Street in Durham, North Carolina for a shit ton of months, but she's also a fan of Kimohawk Sessions and offered some very supportive words on my review of Constantine, my premiere episode of Slick Flick Pick, which I performed with Red Devil, if you recall. But thank you, Haley, for your warm words and support. If you are in need, cinematic fanatics, of a new look and want to feel like a new man or woman, head on down to Wavelength Salon or check out Hermon Tress on Instagram. That's H-A-I-R-M-O-N-T-R-E-S-S. As one of her many talents is, in fact, hair coloring. Enjoy, Cinematic Fanatics. And please, if you enjoy this show, this broadcast, these Kimohawk sessions, please go on Apple Podcast and leave comments and provide a star rating. I would like to think that I crank out top-notch shit, but that is for you to decide. Please take some time out of your day, your very busy schedules, to leave some information on Apple Podcast, as your words are the fuel for this trawler ship to continue. The Fog is a 1980 American supernatural horror film directed by John Carpenter. It has a top-notch cast, 
Now, at the time, a lot of these people were casually known, but they would prove to have successful careers in their own right. You have Adrian Barbo, who was John Carpenter's wife at the time, and that's probably why she seems to have top billing here over Jamie Lee Curtis. Tom Atkins, he's the guy with the Budweiser bod. Janet Lee, that's Jamie Lee's mother. Now, they would reunite, and they would be in the same film in Halloween H2O, which I believe was in 1998, 20 years after 1978, the year that he came home. But they rarely have any interaction. But in Halloween H2O, it's Janet Lee that gets the great line, well, it's Halloween, everyone's entitled to one good scare. And you have Hall Holbrook. I love Hal Holbrook. He was Deep Throat in All the President's Men. He was in the Star Chamber. He was a bad dude in Magnum Force with Clint Eastwood, part of the Dirty Harry series. But he's always a welcome addition. Now, this plot is fucking ridiculous. It tells the story of a strange glowing fog that sweeps over a small coastal town in Northern California, bringing vengeful ghosts and leper mariners who were killed in a shipwreck one century before. Ridiculous. Now, this was filmed in one month's time, and it was a full moon on the day one of shooting, and it was a full moon the last day of filming. That's some crazy shit. I wonder how much fog they had to deal with. The film divided critics upon release, receiving praise for the visuals and acting, but criticism for the structure and screenplay. However, it had approximately a $1 million budget thereabouts, but it made $21 million domestically. Regardless of whatever the critics, whether they lauded it or they shit on it, that's a good return. Yeah. And to me, that constitutes a success. But there's a lot of themes throughout the film. Revenge, repressed corruption and historical events. I think it also deals with loneliness. I think it deals with trauma. And I think it deals with new beginnings. Now, we're not even going to talk about the terrible remake that mm -hmm. was a stain yes. besmirching the good name of the original. I wanted it to be good so bad. Now, I'm not opposed to remakes, as that's all you're going to get in contemporary film society, but it's not worth talking about any further. But we still love you, Tom Welling. Tom Welling was one of the greatest iterations of Superman, but what he really did a good job of was playing a great Clark Kent. The initial inspiration for The Fog came to Carpenter when he and his collaborator and girlfriend at the time, Deborah Hill, were promoting Assault on Precinct 13. They visited Stonehenge while in England, and they witnessed some fog. Carpenter stated that he drew inspiration for this story from a British film which dealt with monsters in the clouds. Now, I wish that I had the DVD commentary for this film, but I do not, as I own it on Prime. Carpenter speaks to the fact that there was a deliberate wreckage of a ship and some subsequent plundering, and this was all based on a real event where the ship was called the frolic. So in a sense, it's rooted in some kind of distant reality. And what Carpenter's great at, he's actually great at a lot of things, but one thing he's great at is recycling characters from different films. I feel like Carpenter's films are just part of one big anthology, but you recognize a lot of faces here from just Halloween two years prior. But he's very economical, like the way that I've heard Clint Eastwood described as a director. John Carpenter is able to turn gold from fucking straw. He is a real talent on doing a lot with a little and working in very constrained windows of time. So he seems to be someone who was put on this earth to be involved in film and directing. Now, the Point Reyes Lighthouse is featured prominently in the film. I would love to make it out there one day, 
And you know what I would take with me, Red Devil, is this great action figurine of Blake. You hear that, Cinematic Fanatics? I have an action figure that I'm holding in my hands right now (laughs) of Blake. You can clearly see some fucked up teeth, some leprosy. He's got these red glowing eyes, and he's got his scabbard and his sword, and he is angry, and he's looking for revenge. But I don't have a lot of action figures, but this is one that I do have and I treasure greatly. And the reason that it means so much to me is not only because we found it together, but also because I'm shocked that he got that kind of recognition. Because obviously the shape, aka Michael Myers, is a huge grab. Everybody recognizes that. Just like the Jason hockey mask. It's universally iconic. It's recognized everywhere in the world. But nobody knows who the fuck Blake is, because nobody knows about the fog. People saw Halloween, and then they just jumped right ahead to the next thing. They, like, passed on the fog. And I think the fog is one of his greatest films ever. And this action figure is so cool, because it's everything you would want in an action figure. (laughs) So we're going to try to post a video of that on Instagram and see what we're able to do. Yeah. But when you said (laughs) you see some leprosy, I just... Oh, couldn't get back. I can't, I'm trying. I'm still trying to get it back. But Blake is a great villain. There's a lot of backstory there. He's really just a tortured character, like any good ghost that has unfinished revenge business. Red Devil. What do you remember about first seeing this movie? How did I preface the movie? Like, how much did I talk it up before you watched it? And why do you enjoy it so much? These are fair questions. I don't know why I like it so much. I feel like the '80s vibes. I'm always there for that. The ghost stories, always there for that. So I guess it was just the perfect combination. Everything kind of coming together. And obviously, I had been a film of Halloween before I had seen this. But I came into it not really knowing what to expect. But I think it's fair to say that the acting was really great in it. And even though some of the special effects are a little dated or a little cheesy, honestly, I don't think it took away from the movie. I liked it. In fact, I watched it with my mom, and she was making fun of it. And I was like, whoa, what the heck, man? This is an awesome movie. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And by the way, fun fact, my mom is basically identical twins with Jamie Lee Curtis. That's true. Especially like Jamie Lee Curtis as Dean Munch in Scream Queens. <laughs> that is your mother. The persnicketiness, the hair, the energy, the clever sarcasm, That that is your mother, yes. I had seen the film about three times before I introduced you to it. I knew I loved it instantly, and I wish I could go back in time to build this foggy time machine to go back to when I first saw it and when Father Malone's head is cut off by Blake. I remember, you think the movie's over, there's about 45 seconds left before credits, and then there's the fog on the floor of the church, and you have these figures standing there, just as they were before, but this time, Blake gets the drop on Father Malone, and it's fucking awesome. I love this film because you don't see movies like this. There's not a lot of films that deal with maritime, merchant vessels, ghost ships, ghosts on the water. Sure, you have your Jaws and you have your Deep Blue Sea and you have weird movies like where you're completely underwater, like in The Abyss and in this recent movie, which I believe is called Underwater. But this is a movie that the sea is a big part of the plot, but it's on land. It's what I call a director who has scope and he has ambition. And after making Halloween, Clearly, he had found a niche that people wanted to explore with close quarter combat, slasher film, teenagers paying a dear price, but he challenged himself and in less than two years, cranked out a new horror movie that technically is a slasher and that it has a relatively high body count and people are getting picked off. But what it really is, is just a story about trauma and about history and about historical crimes 
because take out the ghosts, okay? Take out every single ghost in this film. Hell, even take out the fog. This would have been just a great drama where you've got this priest who's an alcoholic who finds this ledger of terrible deeds that have been committed. He tries to thwart the centennial award ceremony. That would have made a good story in and of itself. Meanwhile, you've got Tom Atkins picking up a flat-butted Jamie Lee Curtis, and you've got some clever dialogue, and you've got this woman, Stevie Wayne, who is dealing with this trauma, the loss of her husband, trying to raise the kid alone, going into more of the backstory about how she acquired that lighthouse and became a DJ. That would have made a good movie in and of itself. But then you add what we really love, which is ghosts, fog, death, leprosy, a colony. It's everything you want in a movie, and it's done well. So I really, really love this movie. We showed it to Wham Bam Cam in Polish. We would show it to more people had we the opportunity, but it is a great film, and it's a great film to watch in the company of a handful of people. Because you laugh at the parts that are funny, you still appreciate the clever dialogue. It has some legit shit unsettling moments, like in the church and during some of the deaths. I think The Fog is at its best when they're doing their investigations, when Father Malone is learning about the town's history, when Nick Castle goes out on a quest to find the seagrass and what became of its sailors. I really think that The Fog hits a lot of great notes, and it remains partially nostalgic, but it remains one of my favorite Carpenter films. I mean, I almost say that The Fog and Halloween are almost equivalent in skill, but I actually enjoy The Fog more. I think Halloween is scarier, and I think Halloween is highly efficient, but I think The Fog is just telling a really interesting story in a really cool fucking way. So I absolutely love John Carpenter's The Fog, and we actually were going to wait until the 21st of April to release this episode, but I couldn't wait. Because I'm an impatient son of a bitch. no patience. But we will probably watch it on the 21st of April. And can I also just add to what you're saying? It's kind of like May the 4th with Star Wars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Revenge of the Fifth. Mm -hmm. You gotta do it. Mm -hmm. I was just gonna mention movies by the sea, especially horror movies by the sea. I mean, sign me up. I didn't see I Know What You Did Last Summer until I was much older. Man, that's another one that, you know, just horror movie, small seaside town classic. Attention cinematic fanatics. Red Devil and I will be performing a slick flick pick oral pleasure review for I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yes! Not the second one. Fuck that. But the first one. For a multitude of reasons. First, we love the film. We love watching the film together. We've seen the film multiple times and we have been to Southport, North Carolina, where they shot the scene where Helen Shivers gets her little tiara and Barry gets got by a big hook. It's a guy in a slicker with a hook. But we've been there, and I was so stoked to be there. And it's a fun movie. The screenplay is written by Kevin Williamson, and it's like the seaside follow-up to Scream, and it's fucking fantastic. But back to John Carpenter's The Fog. Believe it or not, Carpenter hated the first cut of this film. He hated it. He went back and added several scenes, and this is what he added. The prologue with Mr. Macon, by John Houseman, who has excellent delivery of this urban legend around the fire. He added scenes to make the film more frightening and more gory. When Jamie Lee is approached in the hospital by this waterlogged ghost, that was added, as well as Adrian Barbeau, aka the voice of Celine Kyle in Batman the Animated Series, climbing on the roof of the lighthouse to evade and escape 
vengeful mariners. With amazing boots, by the way. Yes. I mean, I was just sitting at the edge of my seat waiting to see who she going to fall to her death trying to climb in those boots. She got really lucky with the prongs of the ladder. Yeah, she really did. That kept her alive. Although she took a hook in the shoulder. She sure did. Usually I do the Ebert review at the end, which I will, of course, employ that style for today's episode. But I wanted to just give you an overview of some of the reviews to see what we've had to deal with. These fucking naysayers. These motherless whores that would ever think to besmirch the great name of John Carpenter's first follow-up flick to Halloween. We're not going to be their friends, in case you were wondering. One review, Ernest Leo Grande of the New York Daily News. Two out of four stars. Praising the performances, but saying that Carpenter is obviously entranced by ghost stories, but he seems willing to sacrifice story for effect. Lies. Going into a horror film, unless it's one of those elevated horror films, which is really just a heavy drama with a lot of gore, you expect it to be, to an extent, style over substance. But I feel that there is a palpable substance here. These are real characters, they feel real, their dialogue is believable, and they don't do anything that defies belief. They just do what you would expect people to do who are trying to figure out this once a hundred year phenomena that occurs in this small, quaint little California seaside village community. The New York Times' Vincent Canby praised the visual elements, but felt that it paled in comparison to Halloween, describing it as neither a rewarding ghost story nor science fiction, though it borrows freely from both genres. Unlike Halloween, which was a model of straightforward terror and carefully controlled suspense. My takeaway on that is, it's like when Jack Johnson created his first album, Brushfire Fairy Tales. It was raw, it was emotional, and it was a fantastic album. But he would do what a lot of celebrities do once they start picking up that momentum velocity of stardom, and they start cranking out bullshit. Stuff that, kind of like the New England Patriots, they play to win, they don't play exciting. And I want to watch things that are exciting, that are visceral, that are raw, and they feel unrehearsed. Carpenter could have cranked out nine Halloween films. He could have directed them all. He could have done the score for them all. He's kind of a John of all trades, if you will. But he didn't. Carpenter challenged himself. He's like, I'm going to make this film that's not like Halloween. It has a different plot. It has a different conceptualization to it. And it's a bigger scope. Haddonfield was a small town. I mean, you couldn't cross the block without running into 15 people you knew. Yes, this is a small, sleepy fishing community, but I feel like it has a bigger scope. And that it's not just he came home. It's a whole crew of a sunken vessel that comes to reclaim vengeance on an unsuspecting town. And that's, to me, more of a feat. So I applaud John Carpenter's efforts to bring us something different. And challenging himself. Applaud and approve. The good news, though, is there was what they call a reassessment. After the fog had time to settle in the impossible-to-please palates of some of these critics, it amassed a cult following, and later came to be considered a minor horror classic. You know what I'm realizing, Red Devil, is that a lot of these flicks that I've already picked in these first 19, there is a recurring theme or a common denominator. A lot of these flicks that I pick, 
that didn't necessarily sweep the box office, over time, people have looked at them through a new lens. Constantine is one of these examples. Mm -hmm. Constantine serves as the exemplar where at first it did okay, but after people have had time to marinate on it and see that so many films since Constantine. So Constantine is a superhero film. It's DC. It's another graphic novel or comic movie come to life. But when you watch Constantine, you know that you're experiencing something fresh and something unique and something indelible compared to, say, Black Widow or Black Panther or a lot of these Marvel Universe flicks where they feel cookie cutter. They feel you've seen one like the fog, right? Like Dan O'Bannon says, oh, but it's fog, right? Seen it once, seen it for life. That's how I feel about some of these contemporary superhero movies. But Constantine felt more like one of a kind. And I'm seeing that a lot of these flicks that I've selected for this digest of slick flick picks, even if they weren't particularly warmly received once upon a time, people's viewpoints are changing. It's as if they're getting smarter. Clever girl. Clever girl. In the early 2010s, Time Out conducted a poll of over 100 authors, directors, actors, and critics who have worked within the genre of horror to vote for their top horror films. And out of a list of 100, John Carpenter's The Fog placed number 77. Now, these were some of the taglines for this film. Bolt your doors. Lock your windows. There's something in the fog. What you can't see won't hurt you. It'll kill you. Ah. When the fog rolls in, the terror begins. And lastly, John Carpenter, who startled the world with Halloween, now brings you the ultimate experience in terror. Well, these were some of my contender titles for this slick flick. Dead Cruise Calm, Flash Fog Mob, Fog Bank Flank, Fog Blood Bank, Ghastly Galleon, Death's Cold Hold on the Gold, Father Malone's Cold Grip on the Gold, and Take That Gold to the Fog Bank. hey <laughs> Now, what is a fog bank, you ask? It is a dense mass of fog, especially at sea. Well, what the fuck does dead calm mean? Perfectly flat sea. And depending on the humidity and temperature, fog can form very suddenly and then disappear just as quickly. But it doesn't have a gloom. No. Or ghosts. Right. Yeah. That's but, the important part. But it's called a flash fog. Oh. And then you have a flash mob, which is a large public gathering at which people perform an unusual or seemingly random act and then disperse. To me, Flash Fog Mob would have been perfect, but I didn't settle on that. Instead, I settled on Forsaking Blake was their mistake, because to me, it speaks directly to the plot. Yep. And Blake is the one who got an action figure. <laughs> and then, of course, Dead Calm Leprosy, because when you have a Dead Calm Ocean, you get this fog roll in on the sea, and it's Leprosy, as in S-E-A. As in saltwater, as in waves, as in sharks, sea. Well, you said sea, and I think Othello heard you because he rose from his nap. Now, Cinematic Fanatics, it's that time where we discuss TT or Trivialized Trivia. Adrian Barbo patterned her voice after Allison Steele, who was a female disc jockey from the 1960s, who was known as Nightbird. Now, this is from IMBD per usual. After a rough cut of this movie appeared to be much too short, for a theatrical release, John Carpenter subsequently added more scenes, but really it would be fair to say he added more scares. 
Now, the lead ghost, Blake, who I'm currently looking at as an action figure, Blake was played by makeup specialist Rob Button. When Button asked for the job, Carpenter asked him to stand up. Button then expected Carpenter to say, and get out. When Carpenter saw that he was six foot five, he was hired. At one point during the film, Tom Atkins mentions Bodega Bay. That is the scene of another horror film, which we love, and we will no doubt, hey, we might actually be doing a slick flick pick on this sooner rather than later, because if we're keeping it in line with coastal horror flicks, yeah. we should do, before we get to 30 slick flick picks, we should do The Birds, which totally qualifies under those stipulations, and we should do I Know What You Did Last Summer. Sign me up. Yes! But in The Birds, 1963, Tippi Hedren's character pulls into town, all hell breaks loose after. In this film, Jamie Lee Curtis is a hitchhiker who arrives in town and all hell breaks loose. Jamie Lee, much less annoying and obnoxious. Let's just mention that. From Tippi Hedren. Compared oh, to oh, Tippi oh. Hedren. And I thought you were I thought you were making a comparison like between how she was in Halloween or uh, something. I, no, I, 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 I liked her in both, in both. films. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Totally agree. But Tippi Hedren, freaking annoying. Now Tom Atkins' character is Nick Castle, which is the name of the actual actor who played the shape in John Carpenter's Halloween. Now, like I said, this is going to be recurring. John Carpenter is very good at recycling people. To me, it's just economical. Plus, he probably established a good working relationship with them. So why not continue to use them? And we double-checked this shit, and it is accurate. The name of the old clipper ship, as you will see in the film, is the Elizabeth Dane. But the names of the other boats seen in the picture, and this is when Tom Atkins is meeting with his buddy to try to figure out more about what's happening with this vanished seagrass ship. You can see a boat named Hyperio, one Lady Laura, and you can see about 70% of the word on one boat, Halloween. Jamie Lee, of course, would go on to star in Halloween 2, which I'm going to tell you right now, just like The Fog being a great follow-up to Halloween, I thought Halloween 2 was a tremendous sequel. I know people that stop at Halloween and they do not proceed forward. I say Halloween 2 is extremely enjoyable, and Halloween 3 Though it is a complete deviation from what you're expecting in the franchise, Halloween 3 stars Tom Atkins, the man with the dad Budweiser bod, and he is awesome in it. And Father Malone is a self-sacrificing Christ-like figure as he carries the cross to Blake. How fucked up, but true that is. What you've all been waiting for. Let's plunge into the foggy depths of the chilly saltwater in the wake of the seagrass. I haven't heard saltwater used so much in a film. Other than Chinatown. He had salt water in his lungs. Salt water. Salt water. Salt water. I think Jack Nicholson said salt water seven times in that film. We hear salt water a lot in this film. But it makes sense, right? Because it's a coastal film. And the ocean is where the creatures from the fog are materializing from. Because they're coming from the depths of the sea. And so it makes sense that salt water is going to be like the lubrication that fuels the film's direction of travel, and it remains a smooth working machine. Now, The Fog 1980, Avco Embassy Film, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. Now, that's Edgar Allan Poe. And right then with that quote, I love it. Because, one, you're like, where the fuck are we going to go with this? And this film does not have any explicit dreams. It all just happens in real time. There's no flashbacks. There's no dreams. There's no drugged out stupor where you don't know what's real and what's fake. But what I like about that is it's more metaphorical. Is is this really happening? 
things are not clear. The clarity is lacking because of this fog. And much like you have this actual fucking fog, you also have like foggy minds because they can't believe what they're seeing. So I'm totally behind that quote, and I think it's perfectly applicable. Can we just say how great this score is? Yes. In fact, we've talked about this. Comparing the fog score and Halloween score, it's tight, man. I don't know. I, well, I think that this is what I think. I think that the iconic nature of the Halloween theme is undeniably brilliant and lasting. And I think if you're going to pick a ringtone, you pick that. But I think if you look at the holistic presentation of the soundtrack and how it expertly fits what's happening in the film, I think The Fog is a superior soundtrack. Yeah, I might have to go with that too. Because even the moments where there's just quiet suspense building, the music adds so much. I don't think you are ever inundated by too much score. I think it's perfectly complementary to what's happening. I had that revelation about five or six years ago, where clearly everyone loved the Halloween score, and they loved that it was John Carpenter who created it out of nothing. He made this score as well. He completely composed the soundtrack. He's really onto something with filling in the gaps of suspense, even when it's just the two women driving up to the church in the middle of the day. No fog, no reason to suspect anything unpleasant is going to befall them, and yet it's fucking unsettling when they get to that church. I love it. Now we have a pocket watch or a timepiece. Now, for these unpardonable pedants out there who like to poke fun of flicks and find ways that they're not so slick, well, technically the pocket watch shows that there's four minutes until midnight, and then another minute passes, and he says, 11.55, almost midnight. I don't give a shit. Five minutes, two minutes, 15 minutes. It's a great scene, and I'm not going to let some unpardonable online pedant ruin it for the rest of us. So I point it out to beat you to the punch, people, but it is a great scene. We learned that a hundred years ago to the day, 21st of April. Well, now, so that means technically, Red Devil, this film starts on April 20th. I mean, if we're being serious. True, I'll give it to you. Yes, yes. But here's what's funny. He's telling this ghost story to these ugly kids with their shaggy hairdos. (gasps) They're not ugly. Every kid in this film has a haircut that's reminiscent of Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men. I know, I know, I don't care. Well, it's it's barely the 80s. But here's the deal. He's telling them this ghost story about how this group of evildoers is going to rise up from their watery grave and and seek the first campfire that they find. And they're at a campfire. This irony is not lost on this motherfucker. I think that's great. So I don't know if that's the best place to tell that story. On the eve of the 100-year anniversary, by a campfire, with the ocean, a leprechaun's penis length away from shore. Listen, maybe that's the whole point. He's trying to scare the kid. Oh, it works. It works very well. Well, He scared you, apparently. It's a great shot of the bay with this unforgiving wind. The sound effects of this wind, I say the wind gets best actor. That wind in this film is fucking tip top. Paid actor. That's what they say these days, the kids. They say the wind is a paid actor. That's how they say that. Oh, but what if you're dealing with someone that's just blowing a lot of hot air and wind out of their lungs? Sounds like normal actors. Now, the church is my favorite set piece of all the set pieces. Now, I also loved The Lighthouse, of course, because it's just so memorable, and it makes a statement. Like, here's a director that's like, I'm going to film a fucking lighthouse. But the seagrass was pretty great. Like, you felt the claustrophobia-inducing panic that the seagrass displayed. But I just really like the church. And like I was telling Red Devil the other day, right by this Terror Tunes action figure, 
Actually, I think it's Tiny Terrors. I apologize, Cinematic Fanatics. The Blake action figure is part of a series called Toonie Terrors. T-O-O-N-Y Terrors. And they have The Nun from The, the Nun, the film The, film the Nun, <laughs> and The Conjuring 2. They have several Michael Myers iterations, and they have Nosferatu with a rat. They so have a lot. They have a lot. Oh, but the other one I have is Ghostface from yep. Scream. So it's Toonie Terrors. Can be found at Target. Can be My found at Target in the corner ever. by the entertainment section. Yep. But you'll have a good time exploring that shit. But the church is my favorite set piece. I wish we'd spent more time in the church. I wish we had about a 20-minute scene in the middle of the film where everyone met up at the church and they were just slowly piecing together what the fuck was happening. I think that would have been exemplary and I would have loved to get more time with these characters. But we learned that Father Malone is in fact a wino. In his cups. He is drinking from the church stock. Hell, at confession or at communion, I don't know that they're going to have any wine left. Yeah, I mean... That's great. I love this whole scene whenever Bennett comes in and they're just like talking like normal. And then all of a sudden he's like, father, can I get paid? Cracks me up every time. Yeah, it's it's their way of saying he's not getting paid at all and he's not <laughs> going to get paid anytime soon. Yes, sir. Which I will actually just bring that up now. But first of all, Bennett is a cameo, much like Alfred Hitchcock likes to put himself in his own movies. Bennett is John Carpenter. And it's funny because he's the church's carpenter. He's doing oh, woodwork. Also, here's that. my question. After the film is over and all the windows and all the damage that occurred in the church, do you think Bennett quits? And oh, he's like, yeah. fuck this. I mean, he needs to get paid for sure. Well, that. now that the father is dead, I wonder if he's going to find a new employer or if he'll go to the father's house and take what was owed to him for his labors. Or maybe he'll become the father and then get some poor schmuck to do all the carpentry. Maybe he can have Andy be his apprentice. Yeah. Can I say my favorite scene right here in the church? Okay. Love the shot. After Bennett leaves, we have this cool shot where all you see is the shadow of the father drinking off the back wall. And I think that's so cool. That's one of my favorite shots in the film. Now we hear KAB radio, which I heard on another podcast and educated myself. That in the United States of America, everything west of the Mississippi River starts with a K for radio station broadcasting, and everything east starts with a W. How about that shit? That's further proof that this is taking place, well, at least west of the Mississippi, but obviously California. I love the jazz, the swing, or the big band music that's playing throughout. It's a nice contrast to the voice of Stevie Wayne. I think we hear just enough Stevie Wayne in this movie. If we had to hear Stevie Wayne talk for another 10 minutes, I think I'd start growing tired of that. Because we get the sense that she's ubiquitous. She's in one stationary physical location, but she's everywhere in the town by way of reputation and her voice that offers a beacon of light to lost sailors. We see the journal of Father Patrick Malone, 1880, which in a numerical relevance is exactly 100 years to 1980 when the film was filmed. Yep. So in a sense, sense. if you watch this film in 1980, it would be happening in real time by way of the dates. And then there's a little passage, April 30th, midnight till one belongs to the dead. Good Lord, deliver us. That's fucked up. And then I didn't notice this until this last viewing, and I've seen this film at least 10 times. You see this red light on a wall. It's the dead of night. Shit's about to start going haywire because it's during the witching hour. Now, I've mentioned the witching hour on many previous episodes. 
but the window of time varies. But the most consistent thing I've seen is between 12 and 1, the time where the witches are active and all the spirits are coming alive. So the town starts going haywire, but you can see this red light and the contour of a human shape. And then you can see next to it a lit cigarette. So it's clearly two peeps talking. But for a brief moment, I thought it was reminiscent of Michael Myers in Halloween. Now you have phones ringing and payphones. Do you guys remember payphones? I, I do. Sh- I sure shit remember payphones. I remember the payphones that would be at the mall kiosks. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's what came to mind for me too. And then you call your mom to come pick you up. Now there's a scene where there is the son of a bitch who's probably getting paid about $1.75 an hour. And he drinks straight out of the OJ and the grocery shopping mart or marketplace or neighborhood deli slash supermarket. But he drinks straight out of this bottle of OJ and puts it right back on the fucking rack. And I'm thinking, Blake needs to get this motherfucker and drown him in OJ. Yeah, he should have been number one on the kill list. Now glass shatters. And I'm going to tell you, glass shattering is a recurring theme in this film. Glass shatters about 3,000 times. So I hope they have a good glass man in Antonio Bay because there is broken glass shards everywhere. Bruce Willis, aka John McClane, is just ready to run through the town of Antonio Bay and cut up not one but both feet on the broken glass. And now that I'm thinking about glass, it reminds me of episode one, season four of Supernatural, when Castiel's voice is heard by Dean Winchester. And all the windows in the convenience store or the gas station blow the fuck out. That's so what gas good. image came or what glass image came to mind. All the car lights that magically appear, that reminds me of the Stephen King book turned film called Christine that deals with a car that's possessed. Lights on cars with no occupant is always unsettling. And that same thing happened in Supernatural on the pilot, the woman in white, yep. where Sam and Dean are on that bridge up in Alberta, Canada, or wherever the fuck they are. I had this theory, because shortly after this, you see Jamie Lee Curtis hitchhiking. And of course, she's picked up by old, reliable Nick Castle. But I'm thinking that it's unusual for this hitchhiker who lives out of the city to just suddenly be in this town. I chalk it up to the strange happenings during the witching hour, where strange, unexplained things occur. And that's why she suddenly appears. We learn that there's a big party tonight, or a gala, or a soiree. What we really learn, though, is that it's the centennial celebration of a town that has history dipped in motherfucking blood. And we learn that Stevie Wayne owns the station, so she's there day and night. Now we hear about a trawler. Well, for those of us that don't spend a lot of time on the high seas, I didn't know what the fuck a trawler was. But it's known as a working man's boat. They had deep holes for icing down slash storing fish and got their name from what they did. Drag a trawl net to catch fish, a.k.a. trawling. Many of today's pleasure trawlers have full displacement holes with weighted keels, while some have moved to a semi-displacement hole type. Based on that, I think a trawler would be Billy Blue's ship in I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yeah, totally. Easy child. Yep. Climb aboard. Now, a clipper ship was a type of mid-19th century merchant sailing vessel designed for speed. Now, I don't know if that means they're lightweight or they have a shit ton of sails or both. But clippers were generally narrow for their length, small by later 19th century standards, and could carry limited bulk freight, and had a large total sail area. Clipper does not refer to a specific sail plan, it's actually a fan of a basketball team called the- no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But they may be schooners, brigs, brigantines, etc., as well as full-rigged ships. I kind of picture- I mean, this might be wrong, but- 
I kind of picture like the Mayflower because I remember I saw you can actually go see the replica of the ships that came over and they're so tiny. So that's kind of what I picture. All I know about Mayflower is that they merged with compact computers. I don't know anything about that. No, you get it. Mayflower compact. Compact. Never mind. We get it. That <laughs> that joke just got thrown overboard after what? walking the fucking plank. Yeah. Now, oh, 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 hold on. We're talking about the ships. I specifically wanted to mention, I love the scene where they see the, the guys on the seagrass, see the fog show up all of a sudden, and they go out to inspect it, and they look up, and then all of a sudden, the ghost ship comes sailing by. The only other memory of a scene that was so impactful that is pretty much the same scene pirates of the caribbean supernatural in season three they did have a ghost ship episode which i actually really enjoyed and you do get to see now that was supposed to be like the flying dutchman or something like that right it is cool and it looks really great in this movie because it looks realistic and i know pirates had some cool moments it really did pirates of the caribbean especially the first one i love it it had some really good moments of creepiness But we have three dead bodies, which will come to mean more mathematically as we proceed. And then you have this interesting... Now, this is what I call a lot of information in a very sparse amount of words. Stevie Wayne says, as she looks out at the bay, sure beats Chicago, which says a lot with a little. Clearly, she used to live in Chicago. She didn't particularly like Chicago. And now she's here, miles away from Chicago. You know, kind of like moving from Texas to the Carolinas. It says a lot. And... We're only going to be able to piece together details on her backstory from a few framed images and some body language and acting. The dialogue throughout this entire slick flick is sparse, but it's very clever. Hence slick, right? It puts the slick in slick flick pick. I like how this weatherman calls Stevie Wayne, okay, mystery lady. Mystery lady, that's apt because she is kind of a mystery to us. Yeah. As we don't know a lot about her other than she has a son and a terribly annoying babysitter. Mrs. Colbrick. Now, the ocean reflection light that's behind Nick Castle's window, I always thought it looked so cool. So, Nick Castle is in bed with Jamie Lee Curtis, and there's this cool, like, luminescence behind them. My best guess is his home is oceanfront property. So, that's like the moon reflecting off of the water or something. But it's a really cool effect. And it's funny because... Jamie Lee Curtis's first name in the film is Elizabeth, as in the Elizabeth thing. Although there is no connection because she is an outsider and none of her relatives played any part in the horrifying deeds committed against these lepers. Now, Nick Castle, of course, is a joke within a joke. That's just John Carpenter being clever. They're flipping through some of her drawings. She's from Pasadena. It's speculated that she comes from money. She's kind of bored in life. She's always looking for an adventure and she's an artist. Again. This film gives you room to breathe and make some of your own assumptions, which I like. Now, there's a fire going in the fireplace. It's very cozy, is Nick Castle's home. And the doors, which we will briefly see, kind of remind me of Feudal Japan, where you like slide open the door and it's made of like silk or something. That's kind of what I think the front door windows and everything look like. Now, this Point Reyes lighthouse, which is an actual filming location, an actual lighthouse that was shot, that's 313 steps. That Stevie Wayne has to traverse. Every day she goes to work, and she has to, of course, walk up those steps, carrying shit with those boots on. So she's got to be hurting at the end of every day. Oh, yeah. I went went on vacation with my family when I was in college to 
Northern California. And we walked down to a lighthouse similar to this. Like, I felt like the steps were never going to end. I don't know what lighthouse it was, but that's what came to mind, that memory. The other lighthouse that I would really like to go to is the one that's shown in The Skulls with Joshua Jackson and Paul Walker. Now, that's filmed in Canada. So that's evidently a very well-known lighthouse up in the Canadian territory. Hmm. But I've always wanted to see that lighthouse. Now you get this creepy-ass knock. Is it as creepy as the knock in the film The Strangers? Maybe, maybe not. But you get this consistent knock by these water demons. It has a very mechanical cadence to it. And also it made me think, these ghosts are like vampires. Like they're <laughs> they're kind enough to knock to force you to grant them access or you else they can't to get to you. invite them in. I wonder if there was a doorbell. Would they ring the doorbell? Or do they only knock? Mm, I don't know. Good, good question. Well, when, we'll have to research when they, that. When they drowned in 100 years prior, they may not have had sophisticated doorbells yet. Yeah. Can you imagine them with a ring? Like if they heard the doorbell ring? No, no, no. Like the ring. Like the Amazon ring. Oh, can yeah, you, yeah, Can yeah. you imagine them? Like they walk up to the door. They're knocking. There's six of them. They've got their scabbards and they've got leprosy and they're they're being <laughs> eaten away by vermin. And you look at your ring and you're like, uh, no thanks. is it Halloween? What makes this film so great is you can watch it if you're on vacation in a coastal environment. You can watch it on Halloween. You can watch it on or around April 21st or the 21st of April. You can watch it when it's cold. It's just <laughs> you can watch it if you've got a 24-pack of Budweiser. And you can drink Budweiser every time Tom Atkins gets a Budweiser. You would not want to drink the Budweiser if it tasted like salt water. Nope. Instead of being saved by the bell, Nick Castle is saved by the one o'clock glass-shattering busted grandfather clock. Again, busted broken glass. They called me Mr. Glass. You know, Mr. Glass and Unbreakable. But there is a lot of non-unbreakable glass in this flick. Now we have this great isolation shot the middle of the day, very sunny, very desolate, of Andy on the beach. And it looks great, probably was not easy to film. And all those additional footprints you see in the sand, that's from all the takes that they did of that shot of Andy running over to this gold coin that magically morphs into driftwood. Andy's adorable. Let's just say it. I'll say he it. Doesn't, he doesn't annoy me to the extent that you would expect some foundling to annoy me, where they don't contribute anything to the film. All they do is take, like take from the main character's and I like, for example, I like that Stevie Wayne doesn't run out after Andy. She just does what she can from the radio tower because she made a calculated decision that, well, I probably can't save Andy anyway, but I'm going to do what I can to help the remainder of the town, Andy included. Because in just about any other film, like, why does Halloween work? Well, we get a body count with Halloween because one character constantly is going to check up on another character that's in a relatively close proximity. If everyone just stayed in their fucking house and left the door locked, the killer would start getting aggravated. Gold coin, Dane Wood, it's great. This is all we're left to decipher or inference. Based on these framed pictures, we learn that Stevie Wayne had somebody, either a husband or a boyfriend or something. He was already involved in radio, and they clearly were part of a radio station in Chicago because in the picture it starts with a W, WCRM which means that it was east of the Mississippi, and she's already said, you know, fuck you, Chicago, or whatever. My assumption is that she's with this guy, he's been doing radio for most of his life, and she helps him out, or she's somewhat familiar with it as well. Or maybe they had a radio show together, I don't know. But the hubby is alive in a picture when Andy looks like he's about one. So he must have died probably in the last year or two, because she seems like she's still kind of dealing with this trauma. But I also had a thought, 
that he has to be dead, not just divorced, because one, she moves out of state, and two, the child never mentions the father. So he must be dead. But KAB has a new owner, and it's Stevie Wayne. Stevie. Stomach pounder and a Coke bomb. I want a stomach pounder and a Coke. Well, a little research. Now, this podcast that I listened to on The Fog recently, they did not do this research, but we did. A stomach pounder is Pop Rocks. Pop Rocks and a Coke, which is funny because there's this great film, which I will be doing a slick flick pick on called Urban Legend. And in the Urban Legend film, you get this hilarious scene where they're told that if you drink Pepsi and Pop Rocks, your stomach will explode and you'll die. And if you haven't seen Urban Legend, I highly recommend you watch it before I release my slick flick pick on Urban Legend because it's fucking hilarious. We get a candlelight procession, which reminds me of all those times that we went to placate my mom to the candlelight service at Christmas Eve at church back in Texas. Now the seagrass on the radio. So Stevie Wayne is driving up to the lighthouse, which is Red Devil's favorite scene. On her radio, you're hearing updates on this lost seagrass ship. And it's interesting because, kind of like Michael Mann's Collateral, which we've already done a slick flick pick on, it's reminding you that while it's a big world, it also has moments... It can be almost a speck or a scintilla of size because it's all interrelated. You've got about 10 characters in the fog. And by the end of the movie, which is only a 90 minute movie, they all have roles to play and there's a shit ton of overlap. I never really picked this up until my last few viewings. But one of the guys, one of the dead guys on the ship killed by Blake's crew, Al, he's on this missing seagrass ship and he's the husband of Janet Lee. And the three guys on the ship that were all iced, Al, Tommy, and Dick, what I call the three Budweiser men. Budweiser men? Yeah, I got that one. The door opens on its own at this church, and it's great. And this church is far from blessed, because during the witching hour, that's when the rocks crumble off the wall, and Father Malone finds this terribly important plot device prop i.e. the journal, where all of these wicked deeds were recorded for all to know in perpetuity. I learned that a tool fog, T-U-L-E or Thule fog, it's real in California, and it happens at elevations lower than 2,000 feet. Visibility can drop to zero, and the sun can't penetrate, so temperatures reach below freezing, which is good fodder for what happens on the inside of the seagrass. How he commented that it got like within 20 degrees or something like that. Yeah. So that explains that. But again, I fucking love this church. What I just said is probably a huge sacrilege, but I don't care. I fucking love this church. I think it's a great setting. And I love what unfolds within the parameters of the church. And let's not forget that Father Malone didn't know. He didn't know about any of this until he found the journal this night. So do not blame him for the actions of the ancestors. Blake was a rich man with a cursed condition. Blake only wanted to settle, and that's what I call settlers' spirits unsettled. Because mm-hmm. Sam and Dean are always talking about its unsettled spirits, yep. vengeful spirits. Now, the leper colony was only a mile distant, and then between the hours of 12 and 1 a.m., six conspirators met to kill Blake and his crew. And then... Here's another gold coin reference. So this is gold coin reference number two. The first was when Andy finds this stupid fucking gold coin that turns into wood. It should have been the other way around, right? This is where Nick Castle goes into this monologue describing what his father, who was an avid sailor, he saw once a ghost ship. And they talk about this gold coin. 
So it's interesting. And evidently the fog helped the conspirators, because it was the fog that made visibility zero for Blake and his crew, thus allowing this deceptive fire to pay dividends in the destruction of Blake's ship. The sins in this film are in the walls. That's where they not only find this journal or diary, but a gold cross. Now, of course, we get the Bodega Bay reference, which is great. Reminds me of the birds. And I think it's funny that Dan, Dan the weatherman, who's got away with words and away with women, Dan O'Bannon, this guy was supposed to go to the Centennial Soiree. He doesn't go. He stays at his own radio station just to commune or communicate with Stevie Wayne, and it costs him his life because he's isolated at this weather station, and he gets got, all because he was in love with a voice on the radio. This fog glows, and it looks fucking awesome. To all of you critics who say, fuck the fog, it looks stupid, I'm not going to say it, but we're going to take some of those words that I just dropped and reapply them to you. And it's funny because there's this dialogue where they talk about, wow, you know, the father sure takes this 100-year-old business seriously. Yeah, well, Blake really takes the 100-year anniversary seriously. Yup. Also, I noticed that at the house where Andy and Mrs. Colbritz are hanging out in the dark, the frogs stop making sounds. Everything goes deathly underwater quiet when the fog emerges. And to me, it's like in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the rats running from the fire. They say that animals have this sixth sense where they can spot or scout or sense a disaster on the horizon. And I feel like that's what happens with these frogs here. Now, I will tell you, Andy is a well-behaved kid. Yeah, He I says, love yes, ma'am, a lot. And I think that Mrs. Kobritz looks like the witch <laughs> from the Twisted Claw episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? I think there is a strong correlation to be made in the visages of those two women. The claw! While we're talking about Are You Afraid of the Dark, though, one of Red Devil and my favorite episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark, is the tale of the water demons, which is taken right out of the fog, Yep, where you got this old man, he doesn't want to fall asleep, because if he falls asleep, these water demons will come from the depths of the ocean, and they will kill him because he has booty and loot in his possession that came from salvaging the the shipwrecks. So it's a great episode, and it's kind of like a miniature version of the fog. So I highly recommend watching Tale of the Water Demons, Are You Afraid of the Dark on YouTube. Now, I noticed that this foghorn always plays when the fog comes. And it makes me wonder if that's the film's way of saying, hey, when the fog arrives and you've got this flash mob fog, their ship is close by. Stevie the Weather Vane Wayne, as she climbs right up on top of that tower, but she's also constantly giving weather patterns. So I think that should be her new name. Stevie the Weather Vane Wayne. Now, everyone is told to take refuge in the church, which is usually biblically fitting. And we learn that the six original conspirators, that is who Blake and his crew are rising to kill. But as it's been a hundred years, they're already dead. So then Tom Atkins makes the comment, or six to take their place. Which this is very telling because to me, it answers the question Were these spirits coming to kill just any six bodies? and extinguish six warm bodies, or were they killing specific people tied to the diabolical lineage? And I think that answers it. No, they're just killing, they're opportunistic killers. Those three guys on the boat, they clearly had to go. 
because they're in the middle. It's iso- it's when they're isolated that you're yeah. in the most d- danger. Plus, it makes for a scarier movie. And then we are told that God's temple is the tomb of gold. Bing, bang. That means that the gold is in the church. And you know what this reminds me of? Another supernatural episode called The Hook Man in season one, which is one of my favorites. The body had been destroyed, but his hook, which was technically a part of his hand, i.e. a part of his body, was still around. And they had melted it down and reconstituted it into jewelry. So Sam had to figure it out and destroy what was left of the hook in order to kill the spirit. And that's exactly what happened here, was they took the assortment of gold and melted it down into a cross and stored it in the church. Now we have what I call a sacrificial gold offering. And then you think it's over. The fog has dissipated. There's a bright flash. Blake burns up. The gold cross disappears along with the fog. You think it's over. Well, then John Carpenter does something straight out of the Halloween book, where in Halloween, they show about six or seven scenes of Haddonfield in the house, in the closet, the stairwell, places that we as the viewer have already been. He does the same thing here. And what did that mean in Halloween? Well, you could hear the breathing, and Michael Myers is everywhere, and he's nowhere. And then you get that final reveal that he's not dead. Well, for this, you get the same type of thing, where it's kind of this relaxing compilation of images. But then, Nick finally gets to have a smoke. You feel like he's wanted this thing for like 24 hours. And I think it's funny because in smoking a cigarette, you generate fog. But we get to do the John Carpenter thing and we get a compilation of previously visited sites, which is great. And my question, who's going to pay for the church repairs? The Carpenter, John Carpenter, will have his hands busy. It was a false sense of hope and conclusion. There was really no finality to the fog dissipating because Father Malone is walking around. Why? Why, Blake? What happened to six? Are you not very good at arithmetic, Blake? And then, bam, they're back. The fog is back in the church. They're standing there amongst the pews, and they're in the same position as they were before. But then Blake gets the final cut. Perfect fucking ending, decapitating Father Malone's head. We have debated this, Red Devil and I. Why did he come back? Why did he kill Blake? I think it's pretty obvious. The film said six. Six have to die. Maybe Blake was a little bit stupefied, like, oh shit, thanks for the gold, bro. Nah, I gotta kill him. Father Malone basically said, I'm the sixth conspirator. So it's fitting that he be the Christ figure and he die. But really, what would have made the most sense is John Carpenter with the initials JC carry the cross to Blake and then he be decapitated. We have to settle for Father Malone. I think Father Malone wanted to die anyway, because he seemed pretty fucking miserable. Yeah, what's what's going on with him? He was not a happy drunk. Now, Ebert gave it two out of four stars, and I will read you a few of the snippets here. The problem is with the fog. It must have seemed like an inspired idea to make a horror movie in which clouds of fog would be the menace, but the idea just doesn't work out in the fog. John Carpenter's first thriller since Halloween. The movie's made with style and energy, but it needs a better villain. Uh, I say bullshit, Ebert, RIP, because looking at this Blake action figure, I think it makes a considerable villain. So fuck off. The fog basically has the same structure as Halloween. It gives us a small American town. It introduces a few of its inhabitants, 
especially isolated women. It establishes a threat, and then the rest of the movie is very simple. Devoted to scenes in which the threat either does or does not destroy its intended victims. But Halloween's killer was a person, and had at least a bit of personal background. We saw a traumatic scene from his childhood, and heard a psychiatrist describe him as evil incarnate. Well, I take exception with this because, technically in the fog, the killers are men, and we get backstory on who they were, how they turned out the way that they wound up. So to me, I think he's being unfair to the fog. But he says the narrative background in the fog is presented stylishly. The old man tells a ghost story around a campfire on the beach. But when the sailor's ghosts return wrapped in fog, we can't figure out what their motives are. Do they want to kill the descendants of their murderers? Are they angry at the town itself? Are they indeed there in the fog? Or are their victims hallucinating? Come on, man, you know they're not hallucinating. Because we found one of the dead bodies, and it was beaten to death. Are you going to tell me that a fog just twisted and contorted that man's body until the eyes shot out of his head? Come on. Well, let's face it. We wouldn't care about the answers to these questions if the fog were as scary as Halloween. But finally, the fog is encouraging all the same, because it contains another demonstration of Carpenter's considerable directing talents. He picked the wrong story, I think, but he directs it with a flourish. This isn't a great movie, but it does show great promise from Carpenter. I would have given it three and a half stars. The only reason it's not a perfect film for me, like in the way that Underworld was basically a perfect film, is I think it just could have been longer. I think we could have gotten a little bit more backstory, we could have gotten a little bit more plot, and we could have spent more time with these characters that we love and revere. They were very entertaining, and each character had their own personality. Even Janet Leigh is kind of the bitchy director of the Centennial Celebration, and her snippy assistant. I mean, everyone had their own flavor of personality. Red Devil, do you have any last-minute saltwater thoughts or anything you want these cinematic fanatics to know about the depth of your deep-sea love for this flick? It's hard to put it into words. Other than, I would agree. I think you said this at the beginning. I mean, I can watch this four times a year. I never get tired of it. Same. I find my own private nirvana when I experience a new slick flick for the first fucking time. But to bask in the green foggy glow of greatness with another mammalian biped who shares and mirrors my own approbation for the same slick flick, that is sublimeness squared. His initials remain J-fucking-C, though his first name is not Jesus, rather John, our horrifying savior. Crafting indispensable slasher slick flicks, he remains the master carpenter of shooting and cutting economical terror. Jamie Lee serves as his dreamy, screaming apostle. In this flick, I crown Nick Castle, king of the Bud Dumber bod, while Stevie Wayne earns the tiara for travailing a daily walk rocky and remaining our risque disc jockey, torrid, talky queen. Father Malone thought past sins would go unknown, by the end of this superb, spirited flick, his gold cross to bear remains his own. This holy, gilded offering he lugs to Blake alone. But this one sunk, plundered cross 
proves the albatross around his unholy collared neck. Lastly, here's a snippet from this poem by Adrian Rich, one of my favorites, called Diving Into the Wreck, and this is exactly what comes to mind for this flick. I came to explore the wreck. You know, like shipwreck, shipwreck get it? Yep, yep, yep. The words are purposes. The words are maps. I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. That is exactly what happens to the first mate and Blake. I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile cinephile, and you are my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible. For my next Slick F-Stars pick, pick 20, Slick Flick pick, lethal brutality and self-surgery, his specialty, City of Alienation, Predator 2, 1990, and this will be a follow-up on Predator, a previous Slick Flick pick, and it will also have, from Audible Ally, a co-host for this episode, Wham! Bam! Motherfucking Cam! Predator 2, we love Predator 2. Balsetto and Red Devil! Out. <laughs>